Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Good morning to each of you. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm so glad that you've come to worship with us today. Uh, the reason that we gather is to inspire people to become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ who love God, they love the church, and they love the world. Uh, so if we, we can't see a life go from a place of not knowing who God is, not knowing who Jesus is, and, and them receiving Jesus as their Savior, we, we'd say that's a changed life. And so we want to see changed lives that then end up changing the world. And so if we could just see that repeated over and over, a changed life that ends up changing the life uh, of their world around them, that's, that's our desire. And so that, that's our mission, that's what we're about, and we, we want to see so many changed lives that we're in the season of, of prayer and fasting. It's 30 days of prayer and fasting, and we're talking about who's, who's your one? Who, who is the person in your life that you would love to see God change their life so that their life would be changed so that they could change more lives? And so we're praying about that kind of thing, and we're asking God, who is the individual this year, uh, this month, whatever it might be, that you would have me just lift up to you and ask for you to do a work in their heart and that you would challenge me, God, to talk about what Jesus has done in my own life. And so last week when we got together talking about who's your one, we talked about what it means to be a disciple. Uh, it, it's different than just saying, I'm a Christian, because anybody can slap a label on, them, on themselves and say, well, I'm a Christian, I go to, go to church. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're changed or transformed, that, that's just a label. In fact, that label Christian only shows up in the Bible three times. The word disciple, however, shows up over 250 times in the Bible. And in fact, we looked at the, the first disciples that were called in Matthew chapter 4. And uh, we talked about how Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees these guys, they're fishermen, and he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we talked about all kind of the historical background about why those guys would drop everything and become disciples of Jesus immediately. They had never been picked to be a disciple before. They weren't the top. They weren't the elite. They weren't the brightest. They, they weren't the best. And we said that God doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. He's, he's not looking for you to be awesome. In fact, none of us in this room are awesome. You might think you're awesome, but we don't really measure up to the awesomeness of God, the holiness, the perfection of God. So God's not looking for people who have it all together. That's not a single one of us in here. He's looking for people who are willing, people who would say, I want to be a disciple. I don't just want a label. I want to be like Christ. In fact, that's what the word Christian means, little Christ. And so we said that, that God is the one who chooses us. God chose us not because we're awesome or we have it all together, or we're really smart. He chose us in spite of ourselves. He chose us because he sees in those who would become his disciples willing individuals to become like his son. So God chose us to be with him. Jesus said, follow me to those disciples. And so they would walk with him and they would uh, live right alongside with him, learning and hearing him teach and, and looking more and more like him every day, uh, collecting the dust of their rabbi, if you will, following him so closely that they begin to look like Jesus Christ. God chose us to be with him, to forsake everything else, to, to leave everything else so that we would say everything in my life is about the lordship of Jesus Christ. He says, follow me. And those disciples, they, they left their boats, they left their nets, uh, 
they left their father, and they said, I'm gonna make Jesus Christ my everything. He, he's gonna be my Lord. So he's looking for disciples who, who wouldn't just say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I come on a Sunday, but he's looking for people who would say, no, every day of every week, in fact, all of my life, all of my money, all, all of the good things, my job, my family, everything in submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. God chose us to be with him, to leave everything, and then so that we would reproduce spiritually. He says to the disciples, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll teach you to do the very same thing that I'm doing. The reason that I came to this planet, the reason that I'm here, follow me. I want to empower you to then go and reproduce spiritual fruit, becoming fishers of men. And imagine what would happen if you have a local body of Christ just like this with a room full of people who would say, I want to be a disciple. I don't just want a label. I want to be like Jesus Christ. I want to become like Jesus following him to become a fisher of men. And when you have that kind of environment, that's the kind of place we always long to be a part of. Can you imagine what it looks like in our homes and in our neighborhoods, at, at schools and in, in, in our workplaces when all of us say, I'm not just gonna like, you know, play a game here. I'm gonna be transformed by Jesus Christ. I'd say all of us wanna see that. And when you're in a church where the kingdom of God is kind of moving and, and there's some things that are happening and changed lives, it's really, really exciting to be a part of that. But the challenge is, you can see all the great stuff that happens in a church and feel that you're a part of it when you're not actually taking part, when you're not actually using your spiritual gifts or contributing to the work of God, not contributing to what is happening in the movement of God. You're, you're just kind of spectating. I think about sports. Uh, this is easy for us to do in sports. You, you go to a sporting event, and if it's your team, you feel like you're part of the action while they're out there doing their thing. And so it's real easy to kind of sit in the stands and applaud and cheer when they're doing stuff. So if your team is out there working hard, they have a great season, and they win the championship, at the end, when they win the championship, you say, we won. You watched. <laughs> You, you weren't down there on the field. You felt like you were participating, but you were just spectating from the outside. So it's easy for us to cheer and say, hey, that's awesome, that's great, but never to actually take part. In fact, sometimes people can be in the, in the stands and they're just complaining, right? They know better than the players, they know better than the coaches, and so they're telling them what to do and how to do it, and they, they just complain. In fact, last football game that I went to, watch it, watching the Colts play, that, that happened. A, a guy missed a block. He's a huge offensive lineman, missed a block, comes off the field, and a guy behind me starts yelling at this huge lineman who's not very far from us. I'm like, don't do that. So he's yelling like, you stink. He used some other words. He's got a beer in one hand, a hot dog in the other, and just berating that guy who is sweating from working, and the guy looks at him like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm out here working, you're up there complaining and not doing anything. So it's real easy for us to feel like we're apart, maybe applaud, maybe complain, and never actually contribute. And the great thing is, that never happens in church, right? That's why I got into ministry. I would love for you to get in the game. I would love for you to be a contributor in the kingdom of God, not just simply to spectate, but to become involved in the greatest story ever told, to get involved in the greatest thing that God is doing for all of eternity 
And it starts with one. Your one. Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at some friends who had a friend who was their one. Somebody that they loved. This man was paralyzed and they they wanted to see him walk. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 5. And we'll start in verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So it's a full room, a whole bunch of people there, and some of the people are religious teachers, Pharisees, scribes, individuals who God, or Jesus, oftentimes he would say, you all are putting on heavy weights on all these people. You're causing them actually to stumble. You're telling them the way that they get to God is through a whole bunch of work and a whole bunch of effort and it's based on them when it's not that way. That's not the way to salvation. And so Jesus would say, the way to salvation, the way to get to God is through me. Jesus would say, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. People aren't gonna come to heaven by the works and the effort that they put into this. They're gonna get there through me. Well, that made them just very, very upset. In fact, it honked them off so much that they looked for a way to kill Jesus. They're like, we gotta get rid of this guy. And so eventually, they found a way to get rid of him. Uh, They had him sent to the cross, and Jesus bled, and he died on that cross. And they thought, well, good riddance, done with him. But they were actually carrying out the will of God because as Jesus was on that cross, He's the perfect sacrifice because he's sinless. And yes, he died, but then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving, hey, remember uh, what I said about salvation, getting to God? Yeah, just proved it. There we go. Uh, It goes on. Here we are. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, so you got a picture of the room, you got a picture that it's just filled. Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And so you picture this room, it's just packed, don't know how big the room is, but you can't get through anymore, shoulder to shoulder, everybody's in there wanting to hear Jesus who has authority. Last week we talked about the word authority, he has smicka, he has this authority, people want to be in there, they can't get in. Now, uh, up above them, all of the tiles starts falling off, there's debris everywhere, people are wondering what on earth is going in, and they start lowering this guy through the roof. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now at this point, this should be the moment that the room erupts. Like, me next, me next, Jesus. If, if you can forgive his sins, I'll take a little bit of that, thank you. Because I came into this room uh, carrying a whole bunch of guilt, a whole bunch of weight and condemnation that I've not been able to get off of my life. And if you're able to forgive sins, I'll take me some of that. Thank you, Jesus. Next, me, me, me. The the room should have erupted at that moment. But instead, it kind of goes a different direction. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is this? That is a question that you find throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. Who is this, Jesus? Who is this? In fact, that's a question that every one of us in this room needs to answer. Who's Jesus? Every single one of us will be faced with the need to answer that question. Who is Jesus? In fact, one time Jesus is on a boat with his disciples and, and the wind and the waves are, are, are blowing and it's raining. It's just it's a mess and they're all afraid. The former fishermen, they're all afraid out there on the water. And Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and they stop. And those disciples look at one another and they say, who is this? 
that even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this who tells creation to do something and it does it? Who is this? Well, he's God. And you have to answer that. Who is Jesus? Not just simply who is Jesus to you in your opinion, but who literally is he? There was a point in my life, if you'd say, well, who's Jesus? I would say, well, Jesus is a nice idea. That's a great thought to have someone like a Jesus. And if there was a Jesus who actually lived, I'd say, well, he's probably a good man from what I can tell and a good teacher. It wasn't until later in my life that I discovered who Jesus is when he revealed himself to me and I discovered he's God. I discovered that he's, he's my savior and he's my redeemer, the one who would take me from a place of death and a place of sin and take me to a place of life. I discovered that Jesus is my friend. And he's not just those things to me, this is who Jesus is, but you must come to the point where you are face to face with the question, who is this? Who is Jesus? Next verse, verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, that would be something God could do. When he perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. I should think so. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary, extraordinary things today. Now, there's some things that I want us to note in here as we begin to look at this passage through the lens of what's happening with these friends, lowering their friend before Jesus, who is paralyzed. The first thing that I want us to note about these friends is that they had a mission. They were on a mission. These friends had a mission. Now, Mission is really important. It is why so often I stand up here and tell you why we gather. You, you may get sick of it. You, you may be like, why is he saying that again? Well, I say it because there's something called mission drift. Eventually, you start to drift. You start to lose focus as an organization, as a church, in your life. You can begin to drift. So that's why we need a, a mission a mission in our families, a mission in our life, a mission in our culture, mission in our businesses, a mission in our churches. There's a mission to be on. It gives you a direction. It sets the course. Let's, let's, say, let's say you think about this for your job, all right? Think about your company that has a mission. Let's say you work for Eli Lilly. You work for Eli Lilly, and, and your task is uh, you're, you're filling the trulicity pens, all right? You're, you're taking care of people who have diabetes, you're filling those and you're kind of on the assembly line, uh, filling the trulicity pens and you think to yourself, man, we, we could take this and we could actually start to fill ink pens. Not just trulicity pens, we could start filling ink pens. So you start thinking the wheels start turning. I think if I could rearrange this a little bit, I can start filling ink pens. So you do that. And instead of just trulicity pens, you start making ink pens. What's gonna happen? Well, your supervisor's gonna come and say, what are you doing? We're not paper mate. We, we, we don't fill ink pens. We're Eli Lilly. We make medicines that make the world better, that make life better for people around the world. That's, that's who we are. That's what we do. That's what we're about. Look, if you, wanna, if you wanna fill ink pens, go to Bic. We're Eli Lilly. We're gonna be giving people medicine here. 
And so if you have a job and, and there's a mission in that job and you start coming up with some other idea that you would like to do and it's going to take everything off, your supervisor's going to come and say, look, that's nice and all, but you probably need to go start your own company. You, you probably just need to go do that because that's not who we are and that's not what we do. And I started thinking, I started looking at other, other businesses, not just the mission statement of Eli Lilly, which is we create medicine that makes life better for people around the world. I looked at some other businesses, and it was interesting how many times I found the word world in their mission statements. Uh, Instagram, to capture and share the world's moments. Uh, YouTube, to give everyone a voice and show them the world. Mostly cats, but show everybody. Uh, Facebook, to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. Uh, I thought it'd be something about me wasting my time, but they've got loftier things. Uh, Coca-Cola, so, so Coke, right? Soda, pop. Uh, Coca-Cola, to refresh the world in mind, body, and spirit, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness through our brands and actions to create value and make a difference. bit lofty for sugar water, but whatever, you know, <laughs> knock yourself out, right? They're all, they've got this grand thing for the world. I start thinking, well, God kind of has this thing for the world as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that anybody who would believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life. And so God says, look, here's, here's our plan. Here's our mission for the world. Jesus, he turns to part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, turns to Jesus. Jesus, I'm gonna send you down there to the traitor race. I'm gonna send you down there to the rebels who have walked away, turned their back on us, and died in their sin, are in darkness. And I want you to go, and I want you to die for their sins. You're gonna rise from the grave. Don't worry about any of that. And we're going to show them salvation because I care about the world. You ready to go? And he sends his son, Jesus. He's born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, becomes our atonement, the one who would make us at one with God again on the cross, rises from the dead. But Jesus had a mission based on his father's desire that the world might know his son, that he might be glorified. And so if you came up to Jesus and you were to say, Jesus, I think I've got a mission for you. You're a great carpenter. Why don't we start some franchises based on your carpentry? Jesus would be like, no, that's not my mission. That's not what I'm here to do. My mission, Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what I'm all about, Jesus would say. I'm all about seeking and saving the lost. I came for people who are held up in bondage, hold back by sin, and I came to set them free. I came to find people who are in the dark spiritually. They don't know the truth. They don't know what's going on. I came to illuminate them with the light. I am the light. I came to bring them the truth. I came for people who are dead spiritually to give them life. I came so that they might know me. I came to seek and save the lost. That was the rescue of mission of Jesus then, and it's the rescue mission of Jesus today. And it is the mission that he has given to his body, the church. You have a mission. Follow me, Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. Individuals who seek and save the lost. You point them to me. That is my mission. And these guys in Luke 5, they have a mission. What's their mission? 
Well, you got a buddy. I got a friend and he can't walk. He's paralyzed. So they love the guy. And they're like, here's our mission. Our mission is to get Billy to walk. I don't know his name. We'll call him Billy, not his name. Get Billy to walk, maybe to make it grand. Do whatever in the world to get Billy to walk. Like we'll go to extremes, we'll do whatever it takes to see Billy walk again. What drives you? What's your mission? Maybe you say, well, it's my job. Or I, I, I wanna retire early. Or I wanna leave an inheritance to my children. And all of the, those things are great, that's fantastic. But what is your mission and vision spiritually? What is it that moves you that goes beyond just like this life and something temporary and something that just kind of fades away? What is it that begins to propel you when you start thinking about, well, I think that there could be something that, that is much grander and larger and a legacy. What is it spiritually that moves you? What's the mission or vision that you have? Aristotle said, the soul never dreams without a picture. What's the picture? What's the vision that you're, you're seeing in, in your head? Another pastor said one time, if the size of your vision doesn't intimidate you, it's probably insulting to God. What is, what is the driving thing behind you when it comes to the spiritual things? Maybe it's for your children to know Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him. And if that's the case, you're gonna do everything that you can every single day to reveal to your kids just the beauty of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is. What's your vision? What's the dream? I would encourage you to take on the very mission of Jesus Christ that he gave to his disciples if you claim to be a disciple and say that is what I want my life to be about. My mission is to see the lost saved. My mission is to see people who are walking in darkness walk into the light and the truth of Jesus Christ. I will join him in the greatest thing that has ever happened to this planet so that those who are far from God would come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. You and I, we have a mission as disciples. The next thing that I note for these guys is they had an eager expectation. They had an eager expectation. So these friends look at Billy and they're like, hey, maybe, just maybe, if we could get Billy in front of Jesus, then Jesus could do what only Jesus could do. Verse 18 says they were seeking a way so, so there's this thing that's propelling them in this mission and this, this expectation that God would do what only God could do. They're gonna take a chance on God. They had a hunch, they don't know. And so they begin to move in this direction, they start ripping apart the roof, and that's a bit of a chance. Like, I, I'm not sure if this is going to work, I'm not sure if we're gonna have to pay for this, but let's do what we can and take a risk on God for him to do what only he can do. And I, I see this over and over in the Bible, it's called faith. You go to the Old Testament, and you find it all over the place. You find it with people like Joshua. Uh, Moses, the leader, had died, and then uh, God's gonna use Joshua as the new leader to take the people of Israel into the promised land. And so he says in Joshua 1.8, be strong and courageous. I'm with you, be strong, be very courageous. And so their first big task, the people of Israel, they're gonna go up against this city called Jericho. And Jericho's hard to get into. It's got these great big walls. It's, it just seems insurmountable. And so God gives them a plan. He says, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk around the city, do it once a day, do it quietly, do that for six days. And then on the seventh day, after you get done walking around, I want you to stop and I want you to blow some horns and then I want you to scream. Scream? Yeah, scream. No bombs? Nope, no bombs. Uh, hand grenades? No hand grenades. No drones. Uh, no tanks. Just Scream. Now, I'm not a military expert, but screaming doesn't sound like a good battle plan. 
It sounds like what I would do if I were in battle. Like I'm gonna scream and run the other way. But they have an eager expectation in their God and they stop and they do that and the walls crumble. They expected their God to do what only their God could do. I think of other people, you, maybe you've heard of some guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter three. These guys, they decided that King Nebuchadnezzar who made this statue, this, this false God to bow down to it, they're not gonna bow down to some dead God that doesn't even exist, something that's just man-made. They have the one true God, so they don't bow. King Nebuchadnezzar calls in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, what's this I hear about you boys not bowing? You need to bow. They said, we're not gonna bow to you. We won't bow our hearts to you. He said, you bow or you're gonna get thrown in the fiery furnace. And they said, our God is able to deliver us from that furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow our hearts to you. They had an eager expectation that their God would do what only their God could do. And even if he didn't come through, they would not turn their back on the faithfulness of their God. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, and it's called uh, the Hall of Faith. In Hebrews 11, you see person after person after person who showed faith through risk. They had an eager expectation. When is the last time that you had an eager expectation that God would follow through and do what only God would do? That you would take a risk on God that you would take him at his word. And so in this essence of us talking about who's our one, we have a mission, somebody that God has put on our hearts. When is the last time that you figured, okay, I'm gonna step out on faith, take a little bit of risk here, and talk to them about my relationship with Jesus Christ? When's the last time that you did that? Well, these guys in this passage, they have a mission, they have an eager expectation that their friend would be healed by Jesus. And it was just a hunch for them, just a hunch. You and I have more than a hunch. What we have is hope. We have a living hope. What we have when it comes to God and his faithfulness to do what only God can do, we have 2,000 years of changed lives. We have 2,000 years of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and been transformed, forever changed, people becoming disciples. And those of us in the room who have made that decision to, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, many of us in this room, we would say our life is drastically different than it was before. My, my life was a, a train wreck. My life was a mess. And the change that happened in me didn't happen because Chris is smart. It, it didn't happen because I tried harder. I tried hard. I read tons of self-help books while I was taking psychology. Not a one of them did me a lick of good. Nothing was changing me, but when Jesus Christ came into my life, he transformed me from the inside out more so than any book could ever do. I had the living God, the word of God, changing and transforming me from the inside. Those of us in this room who've been changed and have become disciples didn't get there from our own effort. We didn't even get there by our intellect. Because if all you have is information, all you've got is doctrine. All, all you have is just more information. The, the gospel isn't about more information, it's about transformation. God wants to come in through his son Jesus Christ and his spirit and transform your heart and to transform your mind. Not simply information, but transformation that then leads us to motivation, like I'm, I am going to allow this good news that I've experienced to carry my feet, and I'm gonna tell others about it. That is how you and I begin to move from a position of spectating to participating. Not to be spectators, but to be participators in the mission that God has given to us with an eager expectation that God will do 
what only God can do in the one that you're praying for, that he's laid on your heart. So they had a mission, they had an eager expectation, and then they encountered an obstacle, didn't they? They get to Jesus, they get to that room, and it's just crowded, it's packed, they can't get in, and so they can't get through the door, and so they're thinking, what do we do? Now it's at this point that I think for a lot of us, we'd throw up the white flag. We would surrender. We get to that door, we'd say, oh, I guess it must not be God's will that our friend be healed by Jesus. Uh, It's not God's will that this would happen. So for most of us, when we use terms like an open door, that's basically Christianese for the path of least resistance. Well, I just don't have an open door. But every now and then, when you get a closed door, what you need to do is rip the roof off. If you know that it's God's will that you are on mission, on task for him, with him, that he will do what only he can do, you don't stop. You don't turn back and be like, ah, I guess I'm, I'm done with that person. He doesn't want him to be safe, doesn't want her to be safe. No, you continue to pray for them. You continue to push in. You continue to find ways. God, what, what ways can we be creative here for you to begin to break through for their life? Because God, I will continue to bring my friend before your feet so that you can do what only you can do. They had a mission. They had an eager expectation. They faced an obstacle, but they began to improvise so that they could see a miracle. And then finally, I wanna mention this, they got more than they bargained for. They got a whole lot more than they bargained for, right? I mean, they bring them in, lower them down. First thing, uh, son, your sins are forgiven you. Place should have erupted. Everybody should have been like, next. And then he has this little interaction with the, the religious leaders, and then he says, rise and walk. In verse 25, we'll go back there for a second. And immediately, the paralyzed man, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. That's what they'd been hoping for. That was their mission. Get Billy to walk. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe. Now, that's not awe like, oh, that's nice. No, it's more like, that's crazy. Like, are you kidding me? That dude was paralyzed. I had never seen him walk before. He could never walk, and now he's walking. Like, I think he's doing a jig on the way back home. He's pumped. Everybody in the room's like, are you kidding me? Jesus Christ just healed this man, and he's walking, and everybody is filled with awe and wonder more than those guys anticipated. They just wanted Billy to walk again, but now everybody's cheering on God, the God, you're amazing, you're awesome, you're among us. But it doesn't stop there. They got way more than they anticipated. Remember the very first thing that Jesus said to this man? Son, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus looked past the the external needs of that person to the internal needs of the individual. Your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat and walk, but your sins are forgiven. The greatest need that you and I have, the greatest need that those around us have are not an external need, it is an internal need to know Jesus Christ, to have their sins washed away and forgiven. I mean, you might think that as the person that you're thinking of and that God has laid on your heart, you look at their life and their life is just completely screwed up and there's dysfunction all around them, like broken relationship, broken relationship, failed job, failed this, hurting here, pain, physical. The, the, the greatest thing that could happen to that loved one that you know is not that all of those things get organized and arranged by God. That would be great. But the greatest thing that could ever happen is for them to know the living God, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven, washed clean. 
Who cares if they get more pay or if they get healed of whatever disease? If they don't know Jesus Christ, they're to be pitied. But when you know Jesus Christ, we can glorify God and rejoice in the fact that their sins are forgiven. They have assurance of faith. There is hope that begins to fill them and life eternal with God. That should be our desire. Not just externally, but internal transformation. That paralytic on the mat actually represents every single one of us in this room. We have all been in that place. Not just paralyzed, dead, DOA, unable to do anything on our own in this life, unable to resuscitate ourselves, to get our spiritual heart beating, to work hard enough, to be good enough, to be awesome in God's eyes, unable to do any of that, just laid out, unable to do anything. But God in his mercy put someone in our lives who would love us enough to be on a mission and say, I'm gonna pray for him. I'm gonna pray for her. I'm gonna ask that God would do in their life what only God could do. I'm so thankful that God in his mercy provided individuals along the path who would care for me who realized that they were part of a larger story that God was telling, and it did not stop with them. They were disciples who made a disciple. That's my desire for us, that we would be disciples who make disciples, that we would have the same compassion and passion that Jesus Christ has. And yeah, you, you may face some obstacles with the person that God has in front of you, I mean, they may end up like, like me. I mean, I'm sure the people who had been praying for me were like, I'm not quite sure if this is ever going to happen. This, this guy is resistant. He continues to do his own thing. It's not really clicking right now. There's excuses. There's stubbornness. There's apathy. Maybe you were the same way, and maybe the person that you're praying for is exactly the same way. But thank God for those people who kept to push it. I've got a mission here, and I have an eager expectation, even in the midst of the obstacles, that there's a miracle on the other end of this, and God is going to do what only God can do. And I pray that's the case for you and your one. Who is the one that God has laid on your heart that you will be on mission and begin to invest the truth of God's love in their life? You see, it's not enough for us to be spectators and watching other people do this and be like, way to go, keep fishing, catch the next one, do the, do the next thing. It's not enough for us to kind of sit on the bank of the shore and watch others, maybe paid professionals do their thing and applaud or maybe even sit on the shore and say, you're doing it wrong. You need to fish over there. You need a different kind of bait. It's not enough for us to study fishing. Like, how do you do it? Make sure that we get all of this right. I'm not quite sure how I'm gonna get across and so I need more information and what happens if this and I'm not gonna move forward if I don't know how to answer all of those questions. No, it comes a moment where you and I just simply need to be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, carrying his love in our hearts to others and saying, I don't know, don't have all the answers. Jesus, Jesus Christ, transform me and he can transform you. Who is your one? Maybe it's a parent, a friend, a child. Who is the one that God has laid on your heart? Let me pray for you. Father, for all of us, 
I pray, Lord, that we would not be content with just simply saying we, we know Jesus and we, we have salvation and I'm pretty good just with that, but that you would pour your love and truth into our hearts. That as a body of Christ, we, we just wouldn't be spectators of what's happening in your kingdom, but we would be participators. That the love that you pour into our heart would be the same kind of love that drove you in your world mission to send your son, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save the lost. And so, Father, as a church, as your people, we commit ourselves to the very same mission that your son has, to seek and to save, to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for my one I pray for this man that you would move in his heart, that he would know your love and not be able to escape it. I pray for the names on the minds and hearts of people in this room right now as they've been calling out to you, crying out to you for you to do what only you could do. God, would you provide a miracle? Call people to yourself that they would have their sins forgiven spiritually, walk with you. Lord, we thank you for the miracles that are on the other side of this. All of that is for your glory and by your hand. In your name we pray, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvilleroad.cc. God bless you.